you don't know how you're going to handle a situation like that. You know, if somebody had told me at the age of 19, you're losing your kidneys, your legs, your hearing in your left ear, your life is going to change forever. I would have said, there's no way I could handle that, you know, but then it happened and you find strength. You find that you're not only much more capable than, than you ever realized, but there's a lot to live for. You know, that the ha your happiness is not in these kind of physical things. It's, I think your happiness is in the things that you do. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, our friends at the dot store domains, where you can get your own custom dot store domain to set up your own website to sell products or services. You know, different from any .com or .net or other extension, the dot store extension really gives your customers a destination to shop for your stuff. Think about your domain name dot store. It instantly tells people your website is a store and lets your website and URL do the marketing for you. I tried it out myself and I'm loving it. I set up my own dot store with behind the brand. It's behind the brand dot store. And you can find some of my favorite books from best-selling authors who've also been on the show and give me a great deal to sell their books or sell a few copies of their books better than you get on Amazon. You can get your own dot store domain by going to my special link at bit.ly forward slash your custom store. That's HTTP colon forward slash forward slash bit.ly forward slash your custom store. Just go to bit.ly forward slash your custom store and you can check it out. Now let's get into the episode. My name is Amy Purdy. I'm a three-time Paralympic medalist, motivational speaker, and you are watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. I'm here with the incomparable Amy Purdy. Amy, welcome to the show. So I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? <laughs> I made this job. <laughs> you know, you have young people that are uh, in school and maybe finishing school and coming out thinking, what am I going to do with my life? And then you have another group of people who are maybe middle-aged who, because of this pandemic and crisis, maybe they're downsized, they lost their job, or it's a time to pivot, and they're thinking, what am I going to do? And so I, I think signals are interesting and important, and I'm just curious, like, what you were thinking about when you were a little girl, what you wanted to be when you grew up? Like, did you want to be, you know, a professional athlete, or did you want to be a doctor, or scientist, or plumber, or own a flower shop, or like, what, what was on your mind? You know, when I was young, I wanted to be an astronomer. I was fascinated with space. I was fascinated with the unknown. Um, I, I couldn't understand how there wasn't an edge or an ending to the universe, uh, how it just went on forever and ever. I loved the mysteries of life. And yeah, I thought I was going to be an astronomer. <laughs> wow. Deep thinker right from the get. So did you have influence from your parents? Like did your mom or dad, uh, what did they do for, for work? You know, I didn't really have influence for that from my parents. And, and I'll tell you, I'm just, you know, to be, to be honest, this didn't last my entire, you know, high school career. It's not like I was 18 thinking I was going to be an astronomer. But I definitely remember, I think until probably till I was about 12 years old. I wanted to be an astronomer. And my parents, actually, they were entrepreneurs. They had different jobs. We actually ran at one point when I was 18 years old, we ran multiple businesses out of our home. <laughs> so my mom worked 
as an insurance agent outside of the house, but she also worked for this network marketing brand and my dad had multiple network marketing brands, but he was also a realtor. Um, my sister was an interior designer. She's a year and a half older than me. I was a massage therapist and I worked for myself kind of part-time. And so when the phone would ring, we never knew, you know, who, who they were calling for, <laughs> what business they were, they were calling on. Well, I think I grew up seeing, you know, I grew up seeing my parents work really hard. I grew up seeing my mom very passionate about her job, um, very disciplined and do very well as far as, you know, successful in, in, at times for sure. We knew that our parents worked really hard. And I think my sister and I, we just grew up knowing that we had to work hard as well. I mean, we started working when we were probably 15. Yeah, a family of hustlers. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> Representation matters too, right? Like, you know, so if you see your mom working hard, you know, getting it done, I would guess being a female, that ha that that's a very impactful, impressionable experience. It was. It was for sure. And, you know, seeing that she enjoyed her job. Um, and, and we didn't have a lot of money, though. It, but we had enough. And I think my sister and I just, we always knew we also had to work for, for, for what we had or, or for what we wanted. Uh, we actually, my parents gave us both a credit card when we were 15 that we had to pay off. So they were like, okay, here's your first step in how to manage your money. And so we did that. We, we both, you know, we had a credit card, we had to pay it off. We had, my dad bought us a car, an old beat up junkie car, but we had to pay the insurance. We had to pay the registration. We had to pay the gas. So, I mean, we pretty much knew, you know, from 15 on, if we wanted a car, we had to pay for it. And we, my sister and I worked multiple jobs in high school. And I think it's, it just came really natural for us to always run our own business versus working for somebody else. My sister became an interior designer and still is and is very successful and runs her own business. Mine has changed multiple, multiple times. I was a massage therapist and I worked out of the house and I also worked at this world-class spa at the time. Really, I've always worked for myself. I've really never worked for anybody else. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, where did you grow up? We grew up in Las Vegas, born and raised, which you would not think that a professional snowboarder or any snow athlete <laughs> would come from Vegas. But we had ski resorts outside of Vegas. People don't realize that about 45 minutes from our house, so my dad built this house out in the desert. And we complained at first because we thought, why are we so far away from everything? But it ended up being uh, right, uh, not far from a ski resort. So every day after school, I'd drive up there with my friends and that's where I learned to snowboard. That's awesome. When did you start getting signals uh, that you wanted to be an athlete and really compete? Like, how old were you? So I was not raised an athlete. My house is, is not athletic. We're definitely outdoorsy, but we didn't watch sports. I wasn't raised watching sports. Of course, I would watch the Olympics here and there. At that time, snowboarding wasn't in the Olympics, so I didn't really have that to look up to. When I was in high school, I mean, I, I graduated in 1998. So I guess in about 1994 is when I first started snowboarding. 
and my family they were big skiers but not not athletes there it was more just that was our lifestyle we had a condo in southern utah my aunts my cousins my parents we would all go out there you know over christmas maybe and and do a two-week ski trip and and we get that in every year but i was never good at it i was never good at skiing but I had fun with it. I mean, it was just, I, I never took it seriously. Definitely never thought I was an athlete. Didn't play any sports in high school. But I fell in love with snowboarding at the age of 15. And I was introduced to it by some friends who were artists. And I was an artist as well. I, I, I situated all my classes where I could do multiple art classes back to back, which means I spent half my day just in the art studio at school. And I met some skateboarders, and so there were artists who skateboarded, but they also snowboarded. And they invited me on a snowboarding trip, and I went, and I picked it up really quick. Um, my motivation was I was the only girl, and I was hanging out with all these guys, and they, they didn't teach me anything. They just said, all right, you're going to strap in, and you're going to follow us. And that's basically what I did. And I picked it up like that. The first day I was like, wow, you know, the motivation that, <laughs> that you get from having to keep up and also having a crush on the guys, um, that helped. So I picked it up and just fell in love with it and loved more so the lifestyle of it. You know, it, it wasn't to me a sport. I wasn't an athlete, but it was something that I just, I really fell in love with, with the people, the lifestyle, the culture. I uh, wanted from that point forward to snowboard for the rest of my life one way or another. And I, I kind of set my job up so that I could do that. So I decided the day after high school to move to Salt Lake City, become a massage therapist. And my thought was I could travel the world with this job. I could live in all these ski resorts and all I needed were my hands, you know, and I can show up and I can basically pay my way as a snowboard bum, but have some money. <laughs> all I knew is that I, I loved massage. I loved travel. I love snowboarding. And, and that's what I wanted to do. That's so cool. I take a minute for the people who, you know, don't remember the 90s or maybe grew up afterwards. I remember that time really well. And there was a great delta between skiers and, and snowboarders. You know, like there was this hate or this rivalry where like you'd go to a mountain and the skiers would sort of look down their nose at the snowboarders like get off of our mountain or you're in our way or you're creating problems. Or it was a carryover from the skateboard culture, which is you're a bunch of troublemakers, anti-establishment. So the, the, the cultural aspect, you're, it's like a flood of memories coming back. Because um, I remember those years very well. I was skateboarding and, you know, trying to do my thing, um, even though I was in traditional sports too. But that was a very demarcatable, deliberate line between, you know, people who ski and people who snowboard. But it was a real thing back in the 90s, as even the, the mountains were getting used to it. Yeah, my family was all skiers, um, but I just was never good at it. I actually remember I was skiing with my dad. And we were right under the chairlift and, you know, I was freezing cold. My toes were frozen. I was so uncomfortable. I crossed my tips. I fell. I was crying. My tears were frozen to my face. You know, there's kids above on the ski lift, like clicking their skis together. So snow would fall on my head. It was horrible. And, and I, um, I, I, I was crying and my dad was like, 
you're never going to learn to snowboard if you don't first learn to ski. And I don't know if that was my motivation to like, I'm going to show you, but (laughs) I remember the snowboarder flew right past me and I was like, that's what I want to do. And it just so happens that, you know, standing up on a board came very natural. Yeah. They are very different disciplines. Like it's a, it's, it's night and day. It's actually misleading how easy it looks because it's not as easy as it looks sometimes at least in my experience. It's not, and actually, this is what I've learned from teaching snowboarding as well, is it's really, so it's really easy to learn to ski because you're you're able to kind of stand up on two planks, right? But it's really hard to get good at skiing. Whereas it's actually harder to learn to snowboard but it's easier to get better at it. So it's, it's like, you know, you're standing up on this one plank, but then it's kind of like you can, once you're there and you get your balance, you can cruise. That's actually why there's, you know, I think you have a lot of out of control snowboarders who can ride fast, ride down the mountain, but not really, you know, perfect it. It it takes quite a bit to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, okay, so then where did it take you? So you moved to Salt Lake City. You were trying to sort of uh, snowboard and work. And then what happened? Yeah, so I lived in Salt Lake. I was I was snowboarding. I was becoming a massage therapist. I actually got hired back in Las Vegas. Uh, one of my massage teachers was brought on uh, to hire a massage therapist for this world-class spa in Las Vegas. It was called Canyon Ranch. And I was hired, so I was one of the youngest massage therapists. Um, I had the least experience out of everybody hired there. They had some of the best massage therapists in the world hired. I was very honored to be hired. And so I ended up moving back to Las Vegas, working uh, at Canyon Ranch, and absolutely loved my job. I, I, I loved helping people. I loved knowing that I was, you know, healing people, that people would come to me and feel better afterwards. And I realize this now looking back, it was also very kind of meditative for me because it's such a quiet, calming environment that, you know, as I'm doing the work, I was also very calm and relaxed. And I actually feel like I was my most intuitive in those days because I I was quiet enough to, I think, listen to myself, right? Listen to my feelings and my thoughts. These days we have our iPhones and we get distracted, but I I loved my job and I I felt like this is something I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I, um, I felt like I was on top of the world because I was actually making really good money, especially for my age. I was thinking here are my friends out of high school are working at a clothing store, making minimum wage. And I'm, you know, I've got this career of my own and I'm making great money and I love it. And I really felt on top of the world. And then suddenly like that, my life changed forever. I contracted something called bacterial meningitis. We have no idea how I got it. All we know is one in four people are carriers of this bacteria. So it's, it's fairly common, but it's not common to get sick from. It's very deadly if you get it. And I ended up in the hospital fighting for my life and my life changed forever. How old were you at the time when you when you found out that you were sick? I was 19 when it happened and it was hard. I mean, I thought I knew what my life would look like. I, I thought I I thought I knew 
at that point, you're 19, you kind of think you know everything about life, right? And then all of a sudden, it just goes right out the window. And I had to completely reinvent myself, reimagine the possibilities, and not just start over, but completely, you know, start fresh, <laughs> relearn, recreate a, a new life for myself. Without getting too specific and um, too personal, can you describe for people who don't know the result of a diagnosis like that and what they have to do, sort of what, what you under, underwent? I mean, people know that you're a, a, a double amputee and things like that, but can you be more specific about sort of the impact that it's had suddenly on you? Was it, did it come all at once, for example, or did it happen over months or years, the change? I was actually at work one day and um, felt like I had the flu. In fact, I didn't even think it was that at first. I just thought I was really drained. My energy was drained. I thought, gosh, I'm really achy today. And I made it through about three massages, but then I decided to go home from work early thinking I had the flu. And that night I had a temperature of 101, which is typical flu-like symptoms. Next morning, my temperature actually broke. So my family went out of town because we had planned on going out of town anyways. And, you know, I was like, don't worry about me. I probably have a 24 hour flu or something. I'll just meet up with you guys later. But that afternoon, instead of feeling better, I started to feel worse. And I remember my mom calling at one point and seeing how I was. And I said, I feel like I'm dying. Like I'm so sick. But even to this day, you know, anytime you have the flu, you feel like you're dying. I mean, there was really nothing in me. I didn't actually believe I was dying. But little did I know at that time, I was actually going into septic shock. Um, and I was so tired. And after I got off the phone with her, I, I closed my eyes, I fell asleep. And I, not, not long after I tried to open my eyes, and I couldn't. It, it's like it took every bit of energy in my body to, to force myself awake. And then I fell in the deepest sleep I've ever felt. And then suddenly I heard a voice say, Amy, get up and look in the mirror. And this voice was so startling that I immediately opened my eyes. I didn't see anybody there. But as I was kind of sitting up, I started to realize something was really wrong. My heart was beating out of my chest. I was weak, I was shaky, I was so sick. Um, it took about five minutes to get into a seated position. And then I put my feet on the floor and I stood up and I realized that I couldn't feel my feet. And when I looked to the floor, I saw that my feet were purple and then I saw my hands were purple and I looked at my reflection in the mirror and my nose, my chin and my cheeks were purple as well. Oh. And so it hit me in that moment that I was dying. Oh. And luckily, right then my cousin walked in to, uh, my mom had called her to come check on me and just bring me some Gatorade. And she walked in and she said, oh my God, it looks like you're dead. And I said, I'm dying, I'm dying, I know I am. I have to get to the hospital. So we rushed to the hospital. By the time I got there, my lungs collapsed, my veins collapsed, I was immediately put on life support, given less than a 2% chance of living. It ended up not being the flu. It took five days to figure out that it was something called meningococcal meningitis, which you know we had never heard of before, had no idea how I got it. I was so healthy. I mean, I was a vegetarian at the time. I worked out every day. I was a massage therapist. I was in the healthiest work environment you could be in. And yet this bacteria just blindsided me. And um, it's very deadly when you get it. And I was very lucky. I was very lucky. I mean, it was a miracle to survive. 
I fought for my life for about two and a half months in the hospital. Full organ failure. All my organs failed or hemorrhaged except for my heart and my brain. Um, multiple surgeries. And at the same time, my feet were ice cold. I actually, I, I felt that entering the hospital. And then I was in a coma for a while. So before going into that coma, they put me into an induced coma. And before that, I, I asked my dad if I could see my feet because I was like, my feet hurt so bad. And at this point, I'm also gasping for air. Um, you know, my lungs are collapsing. And and he pulled back the sheets and I saw that my feet were just purple. And that's my, my last memory before going into a coma. And then um, kind of like a week and a half later, I started to wake up a little bit. I was on a respirator and life support and started to wake up a little bit. I, I also had a lot of moments in there where, uh, you know, the the doctors, my family, they thought I was going within minutes and I would just barely hang on by a thread. And, you know, they've had, to, they had to shock my heart a few times into rhythm. So that, that, that week and a half was, um, you know, my parents were on the edge, edges of their seat, not knowing if I was going to survive or, or die like every second of the day. But about a, a week and a half later, I, I woke up um, and I was kind of in and out of it for a little bit. And I, I knew my feet were in trouble. And, you know, <laughs> I felt so grateful to be alive when I, when I learned what all I had been through. And actually, the very first thing I, I said to my dad when he said, Amy, do you have any idea what you've been through? And I said, well, I know I've got the flu. That's when they took the tube out of my throat and I was able to talk. But I said, well, I know I've got the flu. And I said, did you guys call and tell my work I won't be there till Monday? <laughs> you know, at this time, I think two and a half weeks, three weeks had passed. Yeah. And my dad was like, wait, do you have any idea what you've been through? And when I realized what had happened and just how lucky I was to survive, my body fought for me when I wasn't even aware, right? When I wasn't even controlling it. Yeah. And I thought that was amazing. And so I knew my legs were in trouble. Um, I went into septic shock and uh, that had happened early on and I lost circulation to my feet. That's why they were so cold and my hands and that's why they were purple. I was very close to losing my nose, my chin, my cheeks. Uh, I mean, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a big deal, but I, I will say that the level of gratitude that I had to be alive, um, when I was this close to dying, it, that's what initially got me through those tough days and, and, and made me grateful, like, well, okay, I, I just got to kind of pick up the pieces and move on from here. I mean, wow. I, amazing story. I, I just have no words. You know, what you must have gone through, uh, so hard, so hard. And yet, you know, the result of that is gratitude, like, you know, I'm blown away. You don't know how you're going to handle a situation like that. You know, if somebody had told me at the age of 19, you're losing your kidneys, your legs, your hearing in your left ear, your life is going to change forever. I would have said, there's no way I could handle that, you know, but then it happened and you find strength. You find that you're not only much more capable than, than you ever realized, but 
there's a lot to live for. You know, that the ha your happiness is not in these kind of physical things. It's I think your happiness is in the things that you do and in, in the, the act of problem solving and figuring out a way. And I think that really became my mission was constantly to figure out a way, figure out a way to snowboard again, figure out a way to walk gracefully, figure out a way to share my story, then to become a professional motivational speaker or to help get snowboarding into the Paralympic Games or you know, anything else that I've gone on to do. It, it's always been this mission of, um, you know, the path is not clear, so I have to figure it out. And, and I've been very grateful to be able to do that. So I wanna go back for a second to the voice. I'm very curious about that. Are you a spiritual spiritual person? I mean, what do you think that voice was? How do you explain it? How do you describe it? So I'm not a religious person, but I do consider myself very spiritual. And I would say at the time I was as well, being a massage therapist, you're you're much more in touch with your spirit. Um, I think than than a lot of people, right? It's almost like being a yoga instructor or something. And when I heard that voice, it was interesting because it was a mixture, it was a mixture of my voice and a thought, but very, very stern. You know, it was just like, Amy, get up and look in the mirror. Enough to force myself awake when I couldn't really wake up before. And so I, you know, I, I believe it's it's connected to the divine somehow because had that have not happened, had I have not heard that voice, I wouldn't have gotten up and I wouldn't have looked in the mirror. And I probably would have just laid there, fallen asleep and died. I was in septic shock at that time and didn't realize it. So my cousin would have walked in to check on me, probably saw that I was sleeping and that's it. Unfortunately, with what I got meningitis, that's actually the way that many people do die because you don't really know it's anything worse than the flu until it's just suddenly too late. And so if it wasn't for that voice, I, I wouldn't have jumped to my feet. I wouldn't have realized my feet were numb. I wouldn't have made it to the hospital. You know, it's, it's moments like these that are, are miraculous and, and divine and, and it just happened at the right time that make me believe that there is something there. You know, there's something bigger than us. There's something guiding us. Sometimes we just have to be quiet enough to, to listen. I'm getting goosebumps listening to your story, but also thinking <laughs> back to little young Amy staring up at, into the cosmos, having a very quiet personal moment, you know, looking up and thinking about astronomy and all the things. And, um, and I can't help but feel, you know, wow, I mean the parallels that maybe you were looking up into that sky and maybe a divine power, if you want to call it God or a higher power, whatever name you attribute, uh, was, uh, you're making a connection there. It's, it's amazing. That is an amazing story. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, you know, I have that to always go back to. I had multiple other kind of divine intervention moments as well, but you know, I always, when times get tough, uh, I always go back to these moments that were miracles and just surviving was a miracle. Um, you know, even the doctors said that was completely out of their hands that, that I pulled through and pulled through in as good of condition as I did. I, I mean, I ended up losing 
I lost my spleen, I lost my kidney function, I lost the hearing in my left ear, and I lost both of my legs below the knees, and I felt lucky. And I, I think that's that that feeling of gratitude, like, ah, oh, it could have been so much worse, is what uh, carried me through and, and allowed me to kind of, you know, bounce forward to to an incredible life. You know, it took a while, and it's always been a challenge, but it, it's been a it's been, I, I, I'm motivated by challenge. I realize that now. So, yeah. So here's the lesson that I hear that's, um, sort of like punching me in the face, which is adversity is not one of these things. Like it's an option. Like, um, we should not be surprised when we get knocked down or, or we have a hard day or a hard month or a hard year, uh, or something tragic happens. It's, it's not a matter of if it's just a matter of when. So then the question really is, one, are we ready for it? Two, um, when it comes, what are we going to do about it? Because I, I really do think that in many cases, it's binary. It's either one or the other. In other words, adversity, and I've seen it happen. I've let it happen to me, too. Adversity can crush you if you let it. And, and you, can, you can get knocked down and then you don't get up. I've been there. Or you can do what you did, go through, you know, go to hell and back several times and bounce back and say, all right, that happened. That was terrible, tragic, awful, unfair. And then you decide, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to get up and I'm going to move forward. I'm blown away. Absolutely blown away. I was just going to say, you know, or you can use adversity as your ally and realize that actually through that adversity, you just became way stronger. You had all this growth. You had to deal with things you had never dealt with before. You realized how strong you were. You, you realize you're still okay, right? If you're still here, you're okay. You're lucky to still be here, actually, with, with all the different things that we go through in life. I mean, we're so lucky for every moment we have. And when you realize that, you actually can use that adversity to your advantage. Yeah. Well, and, and all the greats through history have taught that same lesson. So you're right there with him. You know, back to Greek philosophers. Um, I can think of the Marcus Aurelius papers and all this where he, he talks about, you know, really you are in control of your mind. That's, that's the, really the only thing you have control over is how you react when something happens. Stuff may happen, but then you get to choose after that. Uh, you can think of all the people who have been persecuted unfairly or dealt with tragedies in their life, they have decided to say, you know, nothing goes to waste, even though this was hard. I'm now going to take this as a way to, to leverage new opportunities. And uh, I think that's a huge lesson. Even if you're someone like me who's dealing with minuscule little problems that I'm whining about, you know. But you know, listen, we all do that, right? We're all human. And I think it, it's all relative, right? I mean, something that's major, you know, that happened to me, there's other major things that happen to everybody. I mean, at some point, we're all faced with loss, or we're all faced with um, grieving something or all faced with a sudden, I mean, right now with 
a pandemic, right? Sudden, major, out of our control, life change that we have to pick ourselves up and keep on going. And so even though, you know, for me, my, my situation, my challenges might be a little bit more visible than everybody else's having two prosthetic legs. But I, here's the thing too. A lot of people think my legs are my biggest challenge and I can't say they necessarily have been. They've challenged me in ways and they've built me into the person who I am today. But I definitely can't say, oh, my biggest challenge is my legs. I mean, to be honest, I don't even think about them. I put my legs on and I walk and snowboard and do the same thing everybody else does. And I'm actually, I feel like they're, you know, they're a blessing, right? I'm like, ah, oh, thank God for these. I mean, these are incredible. So, so yeah, I mean, my challenges are, are similar to the same challenges everybody else would face or, you know, trying something new when I wanted to become a speaker, like that was a challenge. That was, a, a you know, a lot of mistakes and a lot of nerves and a lot of insecurities and discomfort and everything that happens when you step out of your comfort zone. How do you approach challenge? And I think you can let it crush you, like you said, or you use it as an opportunity. And I think that's where I've appreciated challenge or the challenges in my life is I've always thought there's there's an opportunity here. I just I might not know it today, but I'll see it. I'll see it at some point, And usually I do. So let's unpack that a little bit more just for people who, like me, want to know. I can see in, in, you know, from outside looking in with the context of I could either die or I could lose all the things that you lost. And I can see your side of it coming out with gratitude, like, well, I could have died. You know, it could have been worse, uh, which would be the extreme worst case scenario. Um, but what if people, what about people who are dealing with things that are less extreme by comparison. How, what's your advice about finding the gratitude as we're, you know, uh, you know, eating, <laughs> somebody, someone else is eating our lunch or we're having a really tough time or we've experienced a tragedy. How do we find the gratitude? Where do we go to get it? I mean, first of all, I think it's something that we have to practice and like anything, it's kind of, you know, any kind of like, mindset perspective change or tool it's not like it just comes and it's not like oh this person was just born with it or born with a positive outlook i think you really have to practice it we have to remind ourselves right to be grateful for what we have even though we know you know things things could be worse but things could be better we know that i'm aware you know that it, that yeah sometimes our situations suck they're horrible and we're they're out of our control how do you how do you be grateful for that but i think you know when you pay attention to what you do have i mean that that becomes your reality like you, you focus more on what you do have and then i really believe that that kind of compounds right and if and if we're focusing on what we don't have if i focused every day of my life on what i lost my legs and I mean, I would not be where I'm at today. I think it's like the words that I use, instead of saying, I lost my legs, I often say, I have two prosthetic legs. For me, it's a gain more than a loss. And it's just choosing to use that language. It's mm -hmm. choosing to use more empowering language in my own life and in my own experiences. And and that helps me focus on the gratitude and, and on the things I'm grateful for. And I do believe that 
when you look at the things you're grateful for, I mean, it, you carry yourself differently, right? You approach the world differently. You don't have as many bad days. It's very easy to have bad days. Yeah. Bad things happen to us every day. You know, you could be driving down the street and somebody cuts you off and you spill coffee all over yourself. And it's like, I mean, just that, it's like, that's, that can create a bad day. So we have to actively put ourselves into um, kind of a higher vibrating, I think, mindset and heart space when we enter the world and know that challenges are going to happen, right? Days are going to be challenging. That's all there is to it. We have no idea what's coming our way. But if you're aware of that and you approach it with, you know, a looking at the positives of the day, you're, you'll always come out on top. So I think it's something we have to actively practice. And one, one way that I do it is um, through a journal. And every morning I wake up and I don't just write the things I'm grateful for today. Well, first of all, when I do do that, I feel them, right? So you want to feel what you're grateful for as you're writing it down. Don't just write down like family, husband, health, as you're writing it down, feel that like I, you know, I'm so grateful for that. Oh my gosh, how lucky am I? And, you know, feel those things. But then you also do another column where you, you share the things that you're grateful for that haven't yet happened, right? Like the things that you're striving for, like, ah, like this new job, this business, or I just started a podcast. And before doing the podcast, I'm so grateful for this podcast I'm doing almost acting as if, right? Acting as if you already have that. And you start the day just feeling like, wow, I mean, I'm on top of the world. I've got everything I need to, um, to succeed. And you just got to get started. I love that. Uh, let's stay on that morning routine theme. So you're journaling. Do you do this in the morning or the night? I do it in the morning because I like to start my day uh, with that kind of sense of gratitude and, and almost set the tone for the day. Yeah. What other kinds of things do you do ritualistically or like on a daily basis on the regular? Gosh, you know, <laughs> my, my rituals, I take a bath every morning. You know, I, I like to sit back and, and think of my day. I drink coffee in the bath. I like it to be a very quiet space because like I said, we're so busy. Our phones are ringing. We also distract ourselves even when we're not busy. Right. So that's kind of my quiet time. Like I'm not picking the phone up. I'm taking a bath. I'm starting the day feeling relaxed. Um, thinking about the day. One thing I do is the night before I write all my to do's out for the next day. Um, and then on Sundays I write them out for the next week. And so that just helps me know, you know, this is the game plan for tomorrow. And then I wake up knowing that instead of trying to decide the morning of like, what am I going to do today or what things are on, you know, my list. So by doing it the night before, I feel like it just sets me up for success the next day. But yeah, I start the day taking a bath and I journal a little bit. It just takes a couple minutes to do that, to just kind of set the tone for the day. Well, are, are you writing pen to paper or, or is it digital? I'm curious. You know what? Sometimes it's both. It, it's whatever I have next to me. So I do have a I do have a journal by the bed. But sometimes if I'm taking a bath and I just pick up my phone and I jot it down. But once again, it's not. I don't think the act of writing it is really the important part. I think it's more the act of feeling it. It's feeling it as you're writing it because you're just you're setting you're setting those emotions in you 
before the day attacks you with all these other things going on, right? You're like, you are setting the tone on, on how you're stepping into the world. Yeah, it's almost like, reminds me of like training your brain, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like today is gonna to be a great day. I'm letting you know, brain. <laughs> almost like a manifestation or putting it out there in the universe, yeah. I mean, and that's a great thing to do that, you know, a great way, even when you're journaling is looking at the day and what you want to do, but then, you know, write about how you did it before you actually do it. Right. Yeah. And it's like, the, what does it feel like to complete that today? You know, that task that you've been putting off that, you know, you need to do. It's like, write down. I'm so grateful I did that today. You're, you're setting that tone and kind of calling it before you do it, but then it also motivates you. And, and I think it makes you more accountable as well to get those things done. Yeah. So we share some of these routines in common. So I'm with you and some of these most unexpected times is when I get my, my biggest pieces of inspiration. I'll be in the shower, just not thinking about anything. And then all of a sudden, like I will solve a problem I've been trying to solve. Yes. Or I'll be on a bike ride or walk with the dogs. Anyway, just I'm out with nature, undistracted. Um, there's something about water too. It's like, it's almost like liquid healing or it's like the same kind of thing like what you feel asleep. It's like very healing and therapeutic. And so maybe that's some science that I don't understand. Well, you know, I think what you're experiencing there, and that happens to me as well, like my best ideas come when I'm not thinking about them, when I'm in the shower or I'm blow drying my hair. Sometimes like if I'm traveling, if I'm in an airplane, just looking out the window. Um, and I, this is this is like a flow state thing, right? When you're you're you have no distractions. I think you're kind of on autopilot and I feel like it opens your brain up like creatively and all these creative juices get get flowing. It's almost like I always call it this divine download. It's like you have to set the tone for that too, right? And I've realized that if you can set aside a time, so maybe it's showering, maybe it's blow drying your hair, or it's setting aside a time with zero distractions where you can just daydream, right? Look out the window, watch people walk by, you know, not pick up your phone when you're bored. I, I think when we pick our phones up, we're instantly disabling the creative parts of our brain because that's the part that's the problem solving part, right? And that's what we need. Like whether we're creatively trying to figure something out, like if I'm trying to write a speech and I'm like, like something's just not coming to me, um, it never fails that if I, if I find myself just lost in a daydream or showering, it's right there. So that's why you should also have, you know, a piece of paper right by the shower and just jot those ideas down when they come. Those are, those are like, I think those are like your spirit talking. Those are those golden nuggets that if you don't grab them right in that moment, they disappear. What is something that you believed or thought was true five years ago that you no longer believe? Maybe it's a business philosophy or something about yourself. Maybe you've had a a significant change of mind about something. So I don't know if this was five years ago that I can say, maybe like eight years ago, I had this belief, but I, I really believed at one point that you either have talent or you don't. And so when I started speaking, um, I knew I had a story that I wanted to share. 
And not only in a story, but things I had learned along the way. And I, I thought, you know, I, I, I want to share this story. I think it can help other people. And I got invited to speak at this conference. And it, it really did kind of come out of the blue. I, somebody had asked me if I spoke. And I, I think I said, yeah, or, you know, I want to. And they invited me to speak at this conference. And it was in Canada. And I flew there. And I was so excited. I thought, OK, I'm doing it, right? I'm doing what I set out to do. And I got on stage and it did not come to me. My thoughts did not come to me. This miraculous speech that I thought I was just supposed to have didn't come to me because I didn't work for it. It didn't prepare at all. I just thought, tell my story. I'm just going to tell my story and it will come. And um, I wanted to die. I was standing on stage. It was my biggest nightmare, 45 minutes. And I think I even said, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, I was like, I want to die right now. I mean, I had, I, I just, I don't know how I pulled it together, but I got out of there. I was so embarrassed and I got on the plane to fly home and I told my husband, well, I'm not meant to be a motivational speaker. I know that for sure. And I was like, I am never doing that again. And, you know, maybe, gosh, three months later after I licked my wounds and was just like, okay, pull myself together. I still had this like internal, you know, drive. Like I really want to, I, I know that I, that I can help um, impact people through some of the stuff that I've gone through. And so I decided to conquer it. And I read every book I could on uh, motivational speaking, how to be a good speaker, how to put a speech together, watched TED Talks, took a college course, took Toastmasters, hired a speaking coach. And now I'm one of the, top keynote speakers in the world. And, and what I learned is it wasn't about talent at all. I mean, if you think it's about talent, you'll never, you'll never get started because you just think it's, it's ingrained in you. But it's, it really is about having a strong why and having, um, having the, the drive to actually do the work and figure it out and also allowing yourself to not be good. You know, in anything you try, like playing the piano, you're not going to be good for a long time. But if you believe you can learn, you know, that's the difference between like a, a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. If you believe you can learn, then you will. And if you believe you can't learn, then you won't. So I think five years ago, eight years ago, not five, probably more like eight years ago, I thought if I'm supposed to do this stuff, it's just going to come to me. It'll be natural. And I've realized that, no, it's up to you what you want to do and what you're willing to work for. And you grow that entire time and, and you might surprise yourself just how far you go. That is gold. Gold. Pure gold, I'm telling you. That's so good. Uh, I will also say, without any you know, knowledge, I'm making some assumptions, that I'll bet that entire audience was not as critical as you were on yourself. That you, They were probably standing up, applauding, going, that was the most amazing talk I've ever heard. But yet, you know, you, you knew the truth because you, you have high integrity. You also knew that you were capable of much more. Um, so I love all the lessons, but I'll just throw that in too, that um, I think we also, as we're being very critical, which is a good thing to do to level up our own game, I'll watch this interview back and I'll hate it. I'll hate the way my voice sounds. I'll hate the way I look. I'll think the questions are stupid. Um, but somebody, one person out there will, will have gotten some value from this. And so it'll all be worth it. 
that's what makes you good at what you do. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable with yourself and be vulnerable and look at your faults and look at the things that you can make better. I mean, I, I you know, as an athlete, we have to watch ourselves back every time we snowboard, you know, every time we're on the course and you think you're killing it. And then you look back and you're like, I'm horrible. Like I, I'm, that is not how I want to look, but that right there is what makes you better, right? Is you're like, oh, I got to work on this. I got to work on that. You have to be willing you have to be willing to be uncomfortable and not be good. You have to willing you have to be willing to fail and you have to be willing to suck. And you kind of have to now what I know is go into things with a sense of play, a sense of curiosity. When you when you when you go into any kind of project or, or anything new or any business venture, you know, there's a lot of pressure because you you put the pressure on yourself because you want it to be good. You want to do good. You want to put good work out there. But you, the only way you're going to get there really is by, by being curious and allowing yourself to fail and not putting so much weight on it and just have fun and, you know, just say, hey, I'd like I want to try this out and let's just see where it takes me. Like keep that spirit, and I think you'll go much further than, than thinking you have to be really good, from the beginning. Yeah, I'll add my two cents to that. Great advice, which is putting a caveat on that to say that we're super happy that the airline pilot, she doesn't take risks and, and explore while we're taking that, you know, international flight. I'm really happy she doesn't do that. Um, that's totally okay by playing it safe and just keeping protocol. But where, but where there are opportunities where the benefit outweighs the risk or the risk is not like a one and done, that is like the best advice ever. And, and I do think a lot of us are playing small and playing it safe. And uh, one of my mentors, Seth Godin, said to me, Brian, the riskiest thing you can do sometimes is play it safe. And it was such an aha moment for me, like, okay, you know, I've got to be more comfortable with, you know, letting this be a process. No one likes to be an amateur and especially be called out for it. But like, it sounds like you and I are kind of the same, like, I'm very much my own worst critic, and I can tell you ex exactly what's wrong with me right this second. You know, I have a whole long list of things that I want to change and improve. Um, but I do have a learner's mindset, and I, I do want to get better. Um, maybe this last question, um, as we've finalized this, um, you've been through a lot, uh, more than most. And you're humble uh, to say that, you know, people have it worse than you i'm not i would never want to compare scars um we've shared off camera a little bit about my emotional trauma it's a, probably more of a little t than a big t you've been through a big t uh physically and emotionally i'm sure at this point now though with all this life experience and this under your belt what are you afraid of i'm afraid of not reaching my potential i think I think that's my biggest fear and then also my what drives me the most to continue to work and continue to get curious and play and try new things like this podcast I just started. No idea if it will turn into something, you know, super successful for me or not, but I I want to try it and 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 
have a reason and a why for doing it, um, which is I want to help impact other lives, not just through my story, but through other people's stories of challenge and how they thrived through that challenge. And so I think really what drives me is the idea of I don't want to waste potential. I believe that we all have it. Doesn't matter what our circumstances are. We have more potential than than we'll ever even know. You know, we I think we will die with untapped potential. And and I think my drive is to always just I have this belief that we are all capable. We are all capable of doing incredible things. And and I, I enjoy, I enjoy trying to figure out what the possibilities are.